Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. All right. Good morning. We finna have a talk today. We're in a series right now that we call the Gospel in Politics. Uh, This isn't something we do every election season. I wouldn't even count on us doing it again next election season, but this has just been, at least in my lifetime, a rare conglomeration of chaos. The trifecta of mayhem in our lives, from racial tension to political tension to uh, the coronavirus, and we felt as church leadership that God was prompting us to square shoulders with some of these issues so that we are shaping kingdom people to have a kingdom view of these very earthly issues. You following what I'm saying? So Pastor Randy, it was a blessing to have him, one of the great Bible teachers on planet Earth, in my opinion, one of my favorites, uh, for him to come and be a part of kicking this thing off, to give us just a 50,000-foot view of our kingdom calling and our kingdom identity as people who live in a very real world with very real politics and very real consequences. It was a great kickoff to our discussion. If you missed that, you can catch all of that on our website or YouTube channel. Pastor Cameron, the next week, continued the conversation with a rich look at how politics do. They are important, and they fit into the story of God in our lives, but they are not the story of God in our lives. They play a part. They are a cog to the wheel. But they are not the overarching story of God in our lives, and they are not worthy of our worship. And last week, whew, we had a nice little chat about the gospel and the pandemic. And it's good to see that at least some of y'all showed back up to church. <laughs> we'll see what happens next, next week. <laughs> Today, uh, the long-awaited day, I've been looking forward to this, and we're talking about the gospel and race. The gospel and race. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to Romans chapter 12. We'll probably start. We're going to start there. We may end there. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But as you're turning over there, um, let me make something like crystal clear before it gets muddied up with a million words that I'm going to say over the next 35, 40 minutes. Hear what I'm telling you. Racism is a sin. It is not like God in any way. And racism is an egregious offense to the character of God. You realize back in Genesis 1:27, in the Supreme Court of Heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit came up with this wild idea. And I can tell you, if I'd have been in the room at the time, I'd have tried to talk them out of it. But they decided, you know what? Let's make mankind. And let's make them in our image. 
that truly humanity would be a reflection to the world of what God is like. Racism flies in the face of God's creation story. And it looks back down through the corridors of time and says, God, you made a mistake. Some of us are better than others. And that's a lie. You were all created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. That should shape the way we see one another. That should shape the way we look at the world around us. When we see the atrocities of a sinful world wash up on our shores, like we should be reminded that the good, the bad, and the ugly, those are image bearers of the ancient of days. There's so much we could talk about as it pertains to the word of God and its address to racism, racial issues in our culture. Obviously, we don't have time to hit them all. But I feel like the right way to handle this conversation is I've been praying through this. By the way, I've had five migraines in my life. Two of them have been during this sermon series. Um, I think we would do an... In a disservice to the conversation if like some of our other conversations we just took a 30,000 foot view and talked about kind of the broader scope of how the word of God addresses and how the gospel addresses racism uh, you know in, in our culture in our time I think we would do a disservice if we just flew over like that so I think the right way for us to start this conversation is for us to start by looking at some specific trees before we step back to look at the forest and so I want to start here with Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21, that it says these words. This is, this is what the Apostle Paul is declaring to first century Christians in ancient Rome of like, this is what a Christ-centered life looks like. This is the way Jesus intends to live his perfect life through you through the power of his Holy Spirit. Like, this is how it's going to shape up in your everyday and ordinary lives. And he says this, love what is genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and Seek to show hospitality, that word hospitality is even for people outside the faith. They're people who aren't anything like you at all. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight and repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, don't, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
the call of the Christian faith, the everyday ordinary life of a Jesus-centered life. There's no room in any of that for hate and division and prejudice and racism, none. You know, the prophet Habakkuk, you can read this for yourself this afternoon. In chapter 1, like, Habakkuk lived in a world and in a time where injustice seemed to be rampant. Violence was just going haywire in the world that he lived in. And, like, Habakkuk calls out to God in chapter 1 right out of the gate. And he says, God, what are you doing? Surely this isn't how you want it to be. Why haven't you stepped into the story yet to fix this? Have y'all wondered that before? God, why are you letting this stuff go on? Why haven't you stepped in to bring order to this stuff? You know what God's response was? Verse 5, you can see it for yourself. God speaks back to Habakkuk and says, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. I think that's God's word for the 21st century American Christian. As we call out saying, God, like how long, O oh Lord, how long? What in the world are you doing? Surely you can step in and sort this stuff out. Surely you can fix this. I, I hear the voice of God saying to us, even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. So, oh, Christian, would you trust in God? Would you continue to run towards him? Would you continue to have faith that he sits on a higher throne and he's the king of the highest kingdom and he will get his way? And he will glorify himself, and he will work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Will you trust that? So now I feel like in this gospel and race conversation, we do a disservice to just fly over and look at the forest. We need to look at some specific trees. And so it's one reason why I pulled up a chair for this conversation today. As much as I want to inspire you and get you fired up and get you moving towards this in faithfulness, like I want to make sure that we address, we won't be able to hit all obviously, but we address some of what I believe to be significant things that we as a church need to keep a close eye on. And I feel like we should begin this conversation by making some acknowledgments as Christian people. I want to start with these acknowledgments because I am in hope that this will cause everybody that's a part of this conversation to pull a seat up to the table with some humility, to be able to see God more clearly in this mess. As I acknowledge some of the realities of the world that we are living in and experiencing within our little tribal sections of humanity. So let me just start out by making an acknowledgement to my black brothers and sisters. From slavery to the three-fifths compromise to the Jim Crow laws to redlining, just to name a few things. From injustices within education, within our courtrooms, police brutality, historic oppression, as a man who loves you, I'm sorry. 
America, the land of the free. has treated, historically treated black people with horrific injustices and hate. It should have never been that way. But black brothers and sisters, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Things ain't as bad as they were. But we got a long way to go. And brothers and sisters in Christ, black brothers and sisters in Christ, online and in person, I implore you, I beg you, don't let yesterday's tragedies keep you from tomorrow's victories. We stand with you. We acknowledge the horrific plight on black America throughout the decades, throughout the centuries. And we do believe that every black life really matters, both born and unborn. We believe that. We stand with that. To the law enforcement community, thank you. It's got to be a difficult time to be a cop. And I know that it's become almost a racist sentiment to say we back the blue, but we back the blue. And it's not racist. And the green, and the tan. We recognize and acknowledge that a few bad apples have spoiled it for everybody. Most law enforcement officers get up in the morning at the risk of their own lives, leave their family for all hours of the night to bring peace and order in our increasingly unrestful communities. And I'm thankful for that. It must be hard to be a Leo in a time where you probably feel hated when you turn on the news. I would liken being an officer in 21st century America to what it must have felt like to have been a, a returning troop from Vietnam. After having laid your life on the line, whether you agreed with its purposes or not, having put yourself in harm's way for the sake of the people that you love to be greeted with hate and protest must feel like you're on an island. But I want you to know we do support you and we do love you. And I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for our heads of law enforcement in Highlands County. We are blessed for the chiefs of police that we have. I particularly feel blessed to have Sheriff Blackman, who's a member of our church family here, at the helm, who is a godly man. He's humble. And sure, he sees color, but he celebrates diversity. He truly wants to honor and serve, as do the large majority of our law enforcement community all throughout the United States, want to honor and serve and protect everybody and love everybody equally. So thank you.
Thank you to the families that have had to go through that together. White people, white folk, I am a white male, educated, heterosexual, evangelical. According to the social narrative, I am what's wrong with the world. And I'll admit, I acknowledge that historically speaking, guys like me have authored much of the chaos. But I can assure you, I ain't going to be a part of that. And most of the guys like me that I know won't either. Yeah, we have a lot to learn. But white folk, you're not inherently racist because of your whiteness. You're not bigoted because you don't understand. Your whiteness is not the enemy of justice and equality. The enemy is the enemy of justice and equality. But dear white people, don't make the mistake of believing that you can sit on your hands. My dad used to always tell me, Dustin, if you are not a part of the solution, then you are a part of the problem. To the Latino community, Native American, Chinese, Indonesian, I know that they're all a part of our church family. Somehow, in many ways, you've been overlooked and ignored in this racial conversation. But I acknowledge that you are as much a part of this. You've experienced hurt and hatred. You've been overlooked and underappreciated. And you, too, have a part to play in this conversation because racism is not a white people problem. It's not a black people problem. It's an all-people problem, and it's going to be an all-people solution. So the church, I want to acknowledge to you that we as the church of Jesus Christ can't claim to be followers of Jesus and adhere to his word and yet at the same time ignore the grief and the pain of 13 to 14 million Americans. In hard times like this, with some of the things that we've observed in the media and the pain that has rippled throughout the black community, the Hispanic community, in times like this, like, hey, church, we just read and we, we said amen and we bobbed our heads as we saw the call to every Christian, part of which was we mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. Our job isn't to sit back and be keyboard snipers trying to explain away how we got into this situation, what's happening to keep this going, what we need to do to fix it. Like, 
the first place that we need to start is have a little compassion. Have a little empathy to the pain that image bearers of God are experiencing in very real time. And you may not totally understand collective grief, how something that happened in a whole nother part of the country and a whole nother people group can affect people right here in our own community. So let me explain to you how it worked. How it works. I was a high school student when airplanes got flown into the World Trade Center. Let me tell you, I don't know anybody that works at the World Trade Center. I don't know anybody that knows anybody that works at the World Trade Center. I personally can't stand New York City. I've been, I don't care to ever go back. But yet, when I saw those planes hit that building, all of a sudden, the people that I never cared to knew, didn't plan to ever meet, all of a sudden, those people became my people. And I was fighting, man. Don't think that if I wasn't old enough, I wouldn't have marched myself right down to that enlistment office. Collective grief is a real thing. You've experienced it even though you may not have realized it. And I do believe that the gospel is the answer. I do believe that the gospel is the answer. It is the only hope for the problem of racism. Globally and in America, it is the only hope. But listen to me, Jesus never just preached the gospel. He lived it. We can't just preach the gospel at our problems and think that they're going to go away. Like the world has an ear to hear. Man, the world's going to continue to move towards chaos, church. Always. It will be worse 10 years from now. Surprise, surprise. I hope I didn't shock anybody. It's going to keep unraveling. But the church, you can't jump on that roller coaster. We aren't called to just preach the gospel at racism. We're called to be the gospel in racism, just like Jesus did. We don't preach the gospel at human sex trafficking. We go and do something about it. We don't preach the gospel at the sanctity of life and abortion. We get involved. So what makes you think racism will be any different? We have a call as the people of God, as kingdom people, to immerse ourselves in the hardest stuff of the day, to be a light, a city on a hill that a dark world can take notice of and see. And you're wondering, like, well, how do I do that? Like, what, what should I do? Well, look, you have a limited power on a global scale to change everything. So Facebook sniping isn't going to fix everything. But I tell you what, you do have power over the street that you live on, and the neighbors that you have. Have you invited people that don't look like you in for a meal? Have you offered to babysit their kids so they could go out on a date night or so that they could stay late for a couple hours at work to get some things tidied up? 
That's how we immerse ourselves, so that we are being the truth in love as much as we are speaking the truth in love, just like Jesus did. Multiply that times millions and millions of believers around the world. It would change the world that we live in. But we'd rather sit in our holy huddles, listen to sermons, criticize them, say amen when we agree, change churches when we don't, instead of being a part of the real solution. What you going to do about it, church? What you going to do about it? God's called us to a higher calling. We are a kingdom people. We have the antidote to the greatest disease of sin in the world. And it is the hope that we have in Jesus. You know, I really wrestled um, over whether or not to go down this road in the conversation today, but through a variety of affirmations and obviously through much prayer, I feel like we need to also talk about this part of the racial issue, um, and that is a document that was written, I believe, back in the 80s that because of the racial issue in our country has kind of bubbled back to the surface and is being, being used as an educational tool, is being used as kind of a lens to look at all this mess through. Um, it is being offered back to us um, as Americans particularly, um, as, as a worldview, to see the world through the lens of these goggles. And the, the document that I'm referring to is called Critical Theory, or more specifically to this conversation, Critical Race Theory. Now, I know that the large majority of folks in the room right now, probably this may be the first time you've heard that terminology. You may not be, like, savvy on what it's all about. Uh, maybe you've heard people talking about it, but you haven't taken the time to, like, update yourself on it. And so the reason why I find it valuable to address that critical race theory and critical theory in our conversation today is because I can promise you, listen to what I'm telling you, I can promise you if you don't know what it is now, you will be learning what it is soon because it is rising in popularity and it is shaping the view of many people, including Christians, in the U.S. of A. It is a resource that is going to be taught most likely uh, in the public school system. It is already being implemented into Christian schools around the country as well. And so I want to make sure that you know what it's all about, and I also want to be clear that it is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God, okay? Let me say it again for the people in the back. Critical race theory and the gospel of Jesus Christ have fundamental differences. In other words, their roots are in different places. They are drawing life from different wells, okay? Now, on the surface, they look similar. This is why it's confusing. On the surface, critical race theory is a very articulate description of an ideology of like what justice and equality could and should look like. And it's easy as a Christian to say, well, I know that like justice and equality is something that is central to the word of God and the work of God in people. So like maybe these two things are akin. Maybe like one kind of hooks up to the other. Maybe... Maybe critical race theory is like an extension of like good Bible theology. Well, let me just confess to you, like, they are not attached to each other, nor can they be married, nor can they be partnered, because they are fundamentally different at the foundation level. All right? I'm not just going to leave you with that, because I know some of you are like, woo, man, that's... I'm going to tell you why. 
I feel like part of our conversation this morning, we should address the fundamental differences of this since this particular theory is shaping the view of so many Christians. I want to make sure that our kingdom people are always shaped by the gospel and the word of God. And so today's the appropriate day to have this conversation. We'll probably tease it out more on Wednesday night when we have smarter people on the video with me. Three fundamental differences. All right, the first fundamental difference that I'll take a little longer to, to explain is a fundamental difference of identity. All right, I just told you a little while ago uh, that I am a white, male, educated, heterosexual, evangelical. All right, according to critical race theory, that essentially is my identity. That's who I am. I belong to the tribe that also is like me. All right, and class lines and people divisions are kind of drawn based on those categories, or some would call them those intersections. All right, um, so that's inconsistent with the Word of God because what the gospel teaches us is there's a deeper place in us than what the color of our skin is, what our religious leanings are, what our sexuality is. Like, there's a deeper place in all of us, and it starts all the way back in Genesis 127. The most foundational truth of our identity as people is the fact that we were made in the image of God. We all got some different skin colors, but at the root of it all, we were made in God's image. We all come from different nations, but we were made in God's image. That's the foundational piece of the identity conversation. Now, second thing on identity is a sin identity. The critical race theory does not, and critical theory does not have much to say about. Ultimately, critical theory would describe morality as something that is on a sliding scale based on whether you fall into a classification of an oppressor or an oppressed victim. All right, those are those two main categories. And the idea behind critical race theory morality is that oppressors are evil. And oppressees are good. Oppressors bad, victims good. But the gospel teaches us, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a million miles away from the glory of God without the work of Jesus Christ. We have a shared sin identity no matter you're rich, poor, powerful, oppressed, doesn't matter. Because you have a shared sin identity, you've got bigger problems than the color of your skin. And it's called sin. And we all have it, and there is only one hero that can rescue us out of it, and that's Jesus. See what I'm saying? Are you starting to see the clouds part? All right, that's the second part of identity, the sin issue. Now let's go down to the last part of that first identity category, and that would be unity. Unity or um, basically, the, the unity issue for critical race theory says that our unity is found in our shared oppression. Now remember, go back to the category of the color of your skin, your gender, um, your religious leanings. Like, you can only be truly unified with people that have a shared life experience or a shared oppression or the lack thereof as you do. And that's kind of how critical race theory draws a lot of its lines as it kind of divides us out into people groups, but that's not what the gospel teaches. 
As a matter of fact, the gospel teaches us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that there is in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See the difference? For those that are in Christ Jesus, all of those boundary lines that the world has offered to us as an inheritance get obliterated under the oneness of Christ Jesus because we have a new inheritance as a kingdom people. Now, let me be very clear. When the gospel says that in Galatians, it's, the gospel is not erasing our differences. No, the gospel celebrates our differences. I'll actually talk a little bit about that later. The gospel doesn't erase our differences, but it diminishes them in importance. In other words, there's deeper places in you than the color of your skin, so that can't be the highest authority, the highest, most important thing in your life, because that's not the, the deepest part of who you are. So that's identity politics. There's a difference between the gospel. As you can see just in that one alone, the gospel and critical race theory land in two different categories by a long shot, okay? Now, parents of kids, you need to know and understand this. If anybody wants my notes, I'll email them to you. I'll send you stuff from people a lot smarter than me. This is just like my chicken nugget version of the gospel and critical race theory, all right? That's just number one, identity politics. Critical race theory divides you along all those lines, but the gospel unites you. It's truly about equality by starting at our most foundational creation and our most foundational problem of sin unites us all together under that lens. Now, the second thing, the second major area of difference between critical race theory and the gospel is the issue of power, all right, power. Um, critical theory would present to you that power in and of itself is oppressive. Um, it, is, it is something to be disbanded, to be done away with, all right? Power in and of itself is oppressive. Now, the gospel and the word of God teaches that the abuse of power is oppressive. Power in and of itself is not a bad thing, all right? Power is important because we need to have order and constructs within society for it to work. We can't put everybody on the same playing field and this work out. It just doesn't work like that. There has to be authority and submission. We see it all through the scriptures from beginning to end. Power is not a bad thing. The abuse of power is a bad thing. Um, under the critical race theory, if power is inherently bad and we need to be liberated from power structures, all right, then let me just jump to the extreme, all right, kingdom people, gospel people. All right, let me give you an extreme example. God is all-powerful. If I look through the lens of create, uh, the, the critical race theory, God is all-powerful, so I therefore, if God is all-powerful, he therefore is an oppressor, so I therefore need to be liberated from him, but we know that's not true. We need to be united with him. All right, that's the issue of power. Now, the third and final thing really goes along the lines of liberation. Uh, critical theory really presents this idea that liberation from others, essentially. Liberation from others, from oppressors, from power structures. To be liberated from others is, is the ultimate good in the human experience. That's the ultimate thing to be gained, is to be out from under any sort of oppression or power, you're completely liberated, all right? I know for many of us that is our goal in life, but let me tell you, like, that is contrasting to what the gospel teaches. Critical race theory says that the ultimate good of the human experience is to be liberated from others. 
The gospel teaches that the ultimate good of the human experience is to be liberated from yourself and sin and the God of me. A stark contrast there. As a matter of fact, it is not unlike God to put his own people into captivity for 400 years a pop to set them free from themselves to strip down their idols, to bring them back into harmony with their relationship with God. It is the loving kindness of God to pull out every prop from under us that holds us up that is not him. And sometimes throughout history that has meant even captivity. And trust me, like this is the heart of God for you, all right? He is is far less concerned with your happiness than he is your holiness. The ultimate good of liberation is to be set free from yourself and set free from sin and made one with him. Because believe it or not, this thing called life doesn't last long and eternity is going to go on forever. So God is wanting to make you right and transform you into the likeness of Christ Jesus. And sometimes that process is painful. Oh, and God will use other people to help along the way. That's for sure. Those are the three main areas of the fundamental differences between the two. But that's been a close look at some of the trees. I think we need to step back now and have a look at the forest. Just kind of the overarching theme about how racism found its way into the people of God, how it has persisted for all of these generations and what God's word has to say about it and how God views it and his response to us and how we are to respond to it. Listen, believe it or not, racism was not a 21st century American issue wasn't even a 20th century American issue. It's been an all people for all time kind of issue. We're coming into the latter chapters of this mess. It actually started all the way back. Division amongst people started all the way back in the garden with the first husband and wife. With one of their first honeymoon dinners. Satan convinced them, hey, you can be like God if you would just eat this apple. And they said, well, what the heck, that sounds good to me. So they ate the apple and immediately there was division amongst them. That's Genesis chapter 3. By Genesis chapter 4, now there's division within the first family, and we see the first pair of brothers get in a fight, and one brother kills the other one. This is the first family. They don't even have YouTube yet. They didn't even get picked on at school yet. They didn't have video games yet. Like, none of the things that we say are the division problem were back then, and yet they were already divided, the first family. With nobody else to help them, be divided. They were already divided because we were always along the way been believing that we needed to do things to be like God, to be the God of our own circle. This got so out of control that God actually hit reset. If you remember in Genesis chapter 6, and he told Noah to build an ark and he was going to wipe out humanity and start fresh. And so he did. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, when Noah and his family finally find their place on dry land, God starts over completely by giving Noah and his family the same first commandment that he gave Adam and Eve. And that was be fruitful and multiply. We're going to start this all over again. I want you to multiply people throughout the earth. We're going to set up different cities and different places. Like, this was God's plan all along. And what did they do? Well, they were fruitful and multiplied. There were many people now on the face of the earth, but they all stayed together in one area. They were all one race. They all spoke one language. And they got this bright idea that, oh, kind of like Adam and Eve, kind of like Cain and Abel, kind of like humanity previous to the flood. Well, we can... We can We can do the God thing. They believed the lie. And they decided that they were going to, they didn't need God to get them to heaven. They could build a tower that would take them there on their own. 
They could actually build something with human hands that would help them to reach the heavenlies, and so they started to build. And God's response to that was he brought down judgment on them, and one race, one people got struck, and now none of them could talk to each other because he confused their languages, and this is where we get all the languages of the world. Happened, started right there at the Tower of Babel. So naturally, they got all divided out throughout the world, and they started setting up their societies, and the division roots continued to run deeper because they couldn't even communicate with each other. Now, things we're getting out of hand. Well, God decided that as a part of this story that he was going to appoint for himself, of all the people in the world, his own people that were set apart for his own purposes. So he went and grabbed a guy named Abraham that was a pagan, by the way. He wasn't even a God worshiper. He worshiped other gods. He plucked him out of a wicked and evil society and he said, you are going to be my chosen instrument to be the father of many nations. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And so God appointed for himself a people called Israel that were his chosen ones. And he gave them a different set of rules and a different set of laws to follow and different customs that would be used, feasts and festivals to display to the world what God was like. That was his plan. So that the world outside of the nation of Israel would see what Israel's doing. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter, I wrote this in my notes, Deuteronomy chapter 4. He wanted them to adhere to that because he knew that the outside world, once they saw the people of God behaving like the people of God, that the outsiders would want to be insiders. They'd want to be a part of that family. They'd want to follow the customs and the order of God to be a part of what God was doing in those people. But guess what Israel did? They, they mistook God's election of them as his favoritism of them. So they built extra constructs. They created extra rituals and laws to keep outsiders out. The people of God authoring racism. And so God finally had enough. So he stood up from his heavenly throne he took off his royal robes, he put on skin, he moved into the neighborhood, and he went by the name Jesus. And that fixed it all, right? No, as a matter of fact, one of the first sermons that Jesus ever preached was in the Jewish synagogue of the people of God. One of the first sermons that he preached was in that synagogue, and he made a bold declaration in that conversation at church that morning that his ministry was going to be to all races just as it was in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And he used some specific examples. Here was the response of people in church that morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. When they heard these things, that Jesus' ministry was going to be to all races. When he heard these things, all that were in the synagogue were filled with wrath. <laughs> and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. The people of God. Hearing God himself say, my ministry is to all people. Y'all don't mess this up, so I'm going to come and fix it. Throw that guy off the cliff. God only loves us. He only wants us. And they had their deeply entrenched walls built so that the outside world could not come and see and experience God the way that God had meant it to be. That's why God showed up to fix it. And this is why Jesus, before ascending into heaven, after his death, burial, and resurrection, when he gave us the great commission in Matthew 28, he says, hey, all of my disciples, people who are about my business, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so he sent his disciples out. 
And by Acts chapter 2, we see the arrival of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is God implanting himself into people through the power of his Holy Spirit so that we wouldn't be alone as we push back the darkness, as we seek to reach the world, as we seek to reach the nations with the gospel, as we seek to build bridges across racial and national lines so that people might know that God is good. He empowered us with himself, the Holy Spirit, in a really cool picture in Acts chapter 2. The apostles received the power of the Holy Spirit. They stood up and preached a sermon. Peter preached. 3,000 people came to know Christ Jesus. The scriptures tell us that every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation was there at Pentecost. They're to, they're to bring an offering to God, those that believed in the God of the Jews. And so um, it said that when the apostles preached that everyone heard the gospel message in their own language. You catching the contrast between Pentecost and Babel? Babel, everybody spoke one language and they were trying to become God. And so he judged them and he gave them many languages. At Pentecost, everybody spoke different languages and they were trying to bring an act of worship to God. So God showed back up and he spoke the unified language of the gospel. And everybody that was there, though they spoke different languages, heard it in their language. This was God bringing perfect order to chaos that had been set in motion for a long time ago. And that fixed racism, didn't it? Seeing all these people of all different nationalities and skin colors getting saved and worshiping Jesus together, that was the end of racism in the church, not even close. As a matter of fact, the apostle Peter who preached the gospel that day and saw all those people come to Christ of all those different nationalities, he even went on to pen in his letter of 1 Peter to the ancient Roman first century church, he says that we are now a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Many declared to them that like, yeah, we've all got differences and diversity, but the thing that unites us is we're part of a heavenly race now. And guess which one of the apostles later on in his ministry slipped back into racism, slipped back into the old ways of thinking? Peter. We actually see this in Galatians. I'll show you this example as we're getting close to the end of our conversation. Peter slipped back into that Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. The apostle Paul has to call him out because this is what happened. This is Peter now, witnessed the power of Pentecost, declared that we are a chosen race. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul called him Cephas. Paul didn't want to call him the name that Jesus gave him because he was acting like a knucklehead. But when Cephas, was another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men who came from James, so another Hebrew guys, Jewish heritage, before certain men who came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when those guys, those Hebrew Jewish guys show up, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. In other words, fearing the Jews and the Hebrews, his old buddies. So he pulls back away from the Gentiles, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas, God bless sweet old Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, what are you doing? You were there when it happened, man. You've seen the power of God. You've witnessed it happen through you. You declared, no matter our differences, that we are a part of a kingdom race now. 
And here you are slipping back into the old ways of your racism, hanging out with your old buddies, telling your old jokes. This was the Apostle Peter, man. Look, we ain't going to get it perfect, folks. You're as much a product of your nature as you are your nurture. Some of y'all, whether you be black, white, Hispanic, or any other group, some of y'all grew up in racist families. Old habits die hard, but the power of the Holy Spirit can set you free from that. Can set you free from the angst and the hatred and the frustration that you have with other people, groups, because of your life experience, because of how you've been treated. Because you're a kingdom person with a deeper identity who has a greater hope of something that we long for and wait for. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 7, we get to hear a picture from God about what heaven is going to be like. And he tells us that in the presence of Jesus, declaring his glory is going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, there are going to be Jesus followers, kingdom people of every skin, color, heritage, and nationality in heaven. What's cool about that is that reminds me that like our pre-resurrected bodies, the ones we're in right now, these tents, these aren't just temporary things that are going to be discarded. That one day in heaven, like we're going to have resurrected bodies and we're going to recognize each other and we're going to be a whole lot better shape, hopefully, than we are right now. We're going to look so different and the same at the same time. Kind of like Jesus who had his glorified body, but yet there were still scars in his hands. Revelation chapter 7 reminds us that like ethnicity and race is going to follow us right into heaven. You know why? Because God loves diversity. He's the creative one that made it. And so why wouldn't he want heaven to be full of it? Revelation 21 goes on to say that the kings of the nations from around the world, so kings throughout history that have bowed their heart before Jesus as Lord, who are in heaven with us, the kings on behalf of their nations, on behalf of their whole people groups, they're gonna bring their glory into the presence of Jesus. In other words, like they're gonna bring an offering of worship. Then I bet you we're gonna sit back and it's like when you read it in the Greek, it's almost like it's like a peculiar offering of worship. Like the rest of us, while the kings of these Foreign, remote nations are going to bring their offering before God. The rest of us are going to be sitting back like, thinking, that's weird. I've never seen anybody worship like that before. But it's going to bring honor to God. And I tell you, we're going to join in the chorus. You're going to learn some African tribal hymns. You're going to learn some old Celtic worship tunes. Yeah, we're going to be praising God together, every tribe, tongue, and nation one day. So what do we do now? We know that God's going to fix all the broken stuff one day, but like what about now? What about his church? Here's what I would submit to you, church family. Why wouldn't we start practicing for heaven? I don't want the people of Grace Bible to show up to heaven and be shocked. I want us to already be practicing for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want us to worship well. I want us to love and serve one another well, no matter what your skin color or your heritage is. This is how you enter into the story as kingdom people. Yeah, you may not have power to control governments, but you do have power for your own street and your own neighborhood. Would you invite somebody to have a meal that doesn't look anything like you or vote like you? Would you invite somebody to come be a part of a small group at your house that you have nothing in common with? 
would you offer to your neighbor down the street who's a different color than you to watch her kids so she has a couple of hours of like peace to go get some groceries? Would you enter into the story of the lives of other image bearers of God to hear their stories, to see how they live, to feel their pain, to learn to love them? Would, would you do this for me, Grace Bible? Would you ever so often, would you just show up to a church in our community that's full of people that don't look anything like you? And would you worship God with them and practice for heaven? This is the kingdom calling. This is what God has apportioned his people for that the world might know what he is like. I know it's difficult. And I know there's a lot of nuances to it. And man, the social narrative, the cultural narrative, the political pressure, it ain't helping at all. But you are a kingdom people, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You serve the highest king who sits on the highest throne. Do not draw your energy or identity from lesser things. Because truly, truly, Jesus has a message to the world through his church about the beauty of diversity and the power of what racial, racial reconciliation can look like right here in our own backyard. So why not start with us? Let's pray. God, we need your help every step of the way. The whole, the whole construct of the world we live in is set up against your kingdom principles. So we're going to need the power of your Holy Spirit to kick those walls down, to step into the darkness, to be a light in a dark place, and we're going to need you to do it for us. I know that the perfect life of Jesus dwells within those who declare Jesus is Lord. So Jesus, live through us. Show us the way. Be our wisdom and our leadership and our love and our compassion. Be the words of our mouth as we seek to love every tribe, tongue, and nation right here in our own backyard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.